Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Geoffrey Farrer, and I'm a Methodist minister based in Putney in southwest London. Before I was ordained, I spent 10 years working in the House of Commons as a clerk, and I am committed to connecting how we pray to how we read our scriptures and how we vote and how we live. Each week, I'm joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. And today, I'm very pleased to introduce the Reverend Esther Mason. Esther is a Baptist minister currently serving God at Christ Church in Nailsworth, Gloucestershire. Christ Church is a very long-standing local ecumenical partnership of Baptist, Methodist and, U- and the United Reformed Church. So perfect for J-Pitt. They have a heart for inclusion, justice and welcome. Prior to this role, she served as chaplain for a year at Regent's Park College, Oxford, having trained for ministry there. And she lived in Australia for 15 years, which has influenced her in many ways, including her accent. Esther, thank you so much for joining us today. We know that politics in the pulpit can be a bit of a contentious topic, but we also believe that it's essential that the world around us speaks into our churches. When you hear people saying that politics should not form part of our preaching, what's your response? Oh, well, uh, thank you for your welcome, Geoffrey. It's lovely to be here. For me, politics is an essential part of what we preach from the pulpit. In fact, it was a as I was coming towards the the end of uh, my time at a pre in a previous church, someone said to me directly <laughs> that politics had no place in the pulpit. Uh, it was really a kind of confirmation for me that it was time for me to to move on uh, to find a church where there was a, a greater yeah belief that the heart of the gospel is justice uh, and love for all and. And to me, that means uh, sometimes being a prophetic voice, uh, certainly critiquing what goes on in politics. Uh, I, I think there's a danger if we ever stray too far into party politics in a sort of partisan way. But certainly an importance of thinking, what do our scriptures have to say? What what would Jesus be saying to those who are leading our country at this time? So, yeah, most definitely a place for politics uh, from the pulpit. Thank you. And just before we plunge in, uh, beforehand, we we're having a little conversation about how you would lived in Australia for 15 years and how that had sh- helped shape you and your theology. Um, coming from my own perspective, you think I think of Australia as being somewhere very similar to Britain, you know, just Britain with a better climate, perhaps and more crocodiles. Um, but you were saying it had really helped shape you. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I often mention to people that I've lived in Australia because people often hear some kind of slight kind of uh, twang in, in my accent. Uh, that has been shaped by the fact that I moved there when I was 12. Uh, my dad was being moved out there for work. Uh, and I very much felt like an outsider. If you speak with a, a posh English accent, as people deemed my London accent to be, a uh, South London mm. accent, uh, I really did not fit in and you're desperate to fit in uh, as a sort of uh, almost teenager. So I was shaped, uh, I think, by the experience of being an outsider in what should have felt, you know, I assumed they speak English, you know, they would mm-hmm. you know, actually you, you discover that any country, even if they speak the same language, uh, there's difference in meanings. Um, yeah, just a, a, 
I had a real sense of not belonging and having to find myself in in a new culture so that's that's certainly shaped me I think that Australia does like to see itself as a place that has less class distinction uh, more a fair go for all I think it's struggled sometimes to maintain that kind of uh, Mm. you know kind of ethos but that those kind of things have shaped me Um, I'm also shaped by the fact that there I was in a a fairly conservative evangelical church part of the bible belt sort of suburbs of Melbourne uh, where women at that time were not in ministry Um, and so once again a kind of sense of feeling a bit of an outsider as I struggled with what a call to ministry that I was beginning to sense although I didn't really want to own that Uh, and what yeah, I guess what it meant to have gifts that I felt might be include preaching when that wasn't something seen from the pulpit, you know, by women. So, so once again, a, a sense of struggling with what it might mean to be a, an outsider in that sense. And I think those things have shaped my sense of justice, God's justice, God's heart for people. And I hope uh, allowed me to take that sense of those moments where I felt on the outside uh, to have more empathy to stand with those who still feel like they're outsiders uh, within our church and in our society. Yes, very interesting. I think the best preachers I encounter, and I would say the best politicians, are those who have had experiences of being the outsider, the excluded. Um, who have experienced some kind of difference and otherness. Um, and I think it's very true about Australia and America and New Zealand and Canada, that just because we speak the same language doesn't mean it's the same country. And that's a mistake we often make, I think. Yeah. So moving on from that, we're going to get on to our lectionary readings in a minute. And I'm sure something of what you've said will come out through that as well. But um each week, uh, my JPIC colleagues provide me with a little roundup of their expertise, and things have been quite fast developing in the last few days. But some of the recent headlines, um, that um, ongoing discussions about the NHS with plans for more money uh, from the government, but the continuing problems with vacancies and delays and long-term issues. Uh, of course, very much in the headlines, Nadim Zahawi, excuse me, <laughs> Nadim Zahawi, the now former chairman of the Conservative Party, uh, sacked after a serious breach of the ministerial code. And Boris Johnson talking in a new programme about Ukraine, about how uh, President Putin uh, threatened to personally assassinate him with a missile. And just to add that we are in the church season and these things may come out. We've just marked Holocaust Memorial Day on Friday. Um, We've got LGBT History Month coming up next month in February, and we are in that strange period between Epiphany and Lent. And I I don't know about you, my thoughts are very much about Lent at the minute, as I'm desperately trying to think, what are we doing for our Lent course? What's our Lent posters and that sort of thing? So with all that in mind and holding our metaphorical newspapers in one hand and our Bibles in the other, we're going to turn now to our readings. And we've got a good selection uh, this week uh, from the prophet Isaiah, from 1 Corinthians, from Matthew chapter 5 and from Psalm 112. So, Esther, where would you like to start this week? 
Well, I think uh, it would be typical for me to start with the the gospel reading, and that's partly because in all my reading of uh, the Bible, I want to be reading it through the lens of Jesus and how I see he interacted with people, uh, the things he said. Um, And it struck me that as I looked at all these readings, they all had something to say about righteousness. Uh, And I think there's a couple of interesting phrases really that begin and end this uh, lectionary passage from Matthew 5. It starts with the idea, you are the salt of the earth, uh, but finishes with this sort of challenging verse, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, So yeah, uh, a sense of what is uh, righteousness for us. Uh, I think we see quite a lot of self-righteousness uh, sometimes. Uh, and what might that look like? And what does Christ's righteousness look like? So I think for me, those are, are the things I've been dwelling on. Um, I think righteousness, we often think of um, as being about kind of keeping the moral law or, you know, um, and certainly exceeding the, the scribes and Pharisees. Dangerously, we can get into that kind of sense of this is about doing more good works, about being seen more and more to be doing the right thing. Uh, I think in the end it comes down to what what does it mean to be righteous? And I think it's something about right living and where the source of that, that right living. And I think it's very, I mean, it's intriguing each week to see how different preachers get a different theme. Um, uh, last week, we were talking about the Beatitudes and the, and, 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 and the our, our URC colleague went for mountains and that was his theme. And I would not have gone with, right, you know, or not have gone with righteousness. And, and, and that word righteousness and righteous is perhaps a word we, we are a bit afraid of. I mean, I can't think of contexts where you would use righteous now, except for self-righteous. And thinking about politics, we could think of quite a few politicians who might, who might we could use that about. So what does righteousness mean, inspired by this passage, perhaps, and an intriguing passage that we all, all preachers stumble over about Jesus and the relationship with the law? What does righteousness mean, do you think, for you? So to me, I think it is about finding, well, it's an inside out um, kind of and an upside down kind of view of um, righteousness, I think. So I think what Jesus is talking about is a change of heart and mind that then drives who we are. And that, that change of heart comes from the spirit within us, Uh, by our recognition of our need for God's love and grace. So a righteousness found through the cross, and I think that, you know, we might want to think about what the 1 Corinthians 2 passage says. You know, it talks about a different kind of wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. It's not human wisdom or a wisdom that's easily understood because it's a wisdom that is founded in the cross and in the sacrificial love of Jesus that we see there. And so it very much is about this, a rightness that comes not from our own, 
self-righteousness uh, and that's why I think I, I came up with this sense of could we think about self-righteousness and and oppose it with Christ-righteousness um, so a righteousness that comes not from our own doing but from what Jesus did for us and how that works itself out in us as individuals and then through society through the way we live counterculturally, uh, which I think was a theme that there was a bit in in last week's podcast of mm. a countercultural message that Jesus brings um, that yeah. the Pharisees and scribes had lost somehow. It's always been there, mm. but they lost sight of it. Mm. Now, would you like, should we go on to the other readings, do you think, and then sort of perhaps think about directly how we might apply all of that i mean we could apply all of this to politics would you like to just mention the other because you mentioned already one corinthians to i mean perhaps before we leave matthew we'd sort of just mention that classic verse about salt and saltiness and that challenge within church life that i and i think many people have wrestled with about what does it mean for us to be salt and not lose our saltiness so how do we live in the world but remain true to Christ. And, and when we speak, and there's that, that the, the uh, challenge that I've seen, one one of our local vicars here stood as a Labour councillor and it basically caused a huge stink in the church. And it was that, was that, was he doing the right thing? Because he was trying to be salt in the world, but was he being, was he losing his saltiness? So. Yes, it's interesting. I think we often kind of think about salt as, you know, a preservative. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, it talks about. So to me, salt kind of brings vitality as well to things. If I think about chips without salt and with salt on, you know, it brings flavour and life to something. And so, uh, and then I've, I've been dwelling on that phrase, you are the salt of the earth. And to me, me that speaks of something that's very down to earth very kind of um connected with reality so someone a member of my uh, church congregation is a, a both a district councillor and a local councillor uh and he is deeply valued in the community because of his connection because he will often be out uh, in the public, oh, I said that I thought I'd turned my phone off, and there there's, it goes. there's always something on <laughs> in this in this day and age. I'm afraid. So apologies. Yeah, for that. No. Um, you know, he is always he's out in the community. He connects with the community, kind of sharing with them updates on you know the roadworks that are going on constantly in town. You know, he's a he's a source of information in a helpful way that is very down to earth and practical. Um, but is shaped by his, you know, his beliefs. So I think, you know, being salt of the earth does mean, yeah, being in the world, you've got, you know, salt can't have an effect on the, the meat it's preserving or on the chips it's flavouring unless it's on it, you know, and connected within it. Um, so, yes, there is this challenge for us of how we kind of, yeah, are in that uh, but not of it. I've interestingly, I've been um, listening to Bono's autobiography. I think it's just been fairly recently released. It's called Surrender. Uh, 
he talks about that kind of dilemma for him as someone who came to know Jesus, you know, became captivated by his teachings, you know, as a teenager, uh, was quite involved in a in a church that that ultimately gave him and other band members, you know, new too who are Christians, that challenge of you're being too much in the world, you should leave the band and, you know, and go and be missionaries for Christ. But actually, in the end, his resolving, and he wouldn't say he's got it right all of the time at all, is that he needed to stay in the world. And, you know, he has, through that, been able to be involved in huge campaigns, Jubilee 2000, Drop the Debt, you know, and other campaigning ways where he, I believe, has, you know, and other members of you too, been able to be that kind of salt in the world. It's not easy, but, you know, I think that that is the challenge of where we are called to be, uh, is connecting with these, these real issues that impact our society. I mean, it strikes me, Jesus' mission was, you know, he came saying he was coming to, you know, break the oppression, you know, to be good news to the poor. It It, it is real practical action in there. Wow. Let's quickly, otherwise, because we could spend the whole time on the, the gospel. Just you referred already to 1 Corinthians 2. Is there anything you wish to specifically bring in there? Uh uh, again, you're sort of talking about the sort of the, the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of Christ. Yeah. So once again, it, it's kind of this countercultural sense of what it means to be right. You know, our, the wisdom of our society is that, you know, anyone can um, sort of find their way through things. You've just got to, you know, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, kind of, you know, we sometimes get that kind of rhetoric in politics mm -hmm. that, you know, no one should need to be on benefits long term, you know, this kind of sense. But actually this is a different kind of of wisdom, a different kind of understanding. Um, and I, I think it's often, uh, yeah, it's shaped by powerlessness, uh, by humility, um, and ultimately we have to found ourselves and our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross and, and how the spirit can teach us how to live, um, which will often appear foolishness in the ways we spend our times, things we give ourselves to. Uh, they don't necessarily make economic kind of sense. Um, yes. And, and that I think, one of the things I've been grappling with, thanks to the work, especially of JPIT, is, is is thinking more deeply about how our economic system, global economic system works. And I think the, the global financial crisis made many people stand back and think about that. And, and we have accepted the wisdom of this world, that this is how things must be. And, and I really admire those people who have stood back and said, well, does it have to be like this? Do we have to have these incredibly ridiculous inequalities um so i think there's something about there the wisdom of christ and the wisdom of this world um something that was in last week's reading as well and yeah. I, I think the bad news is kind of in all of these texts really mm. is for those with power um you know and i think we have to think about you know that's those who hold power in our nation, but also those who hold power in our church, you know, because there's a real critique 
of are we using that, the power that we have, you know, whatever power that is, are we using it for good? Uh, it's not wrong to have power, but there is, I think, a huge responsibility that comes through um, these readings. You know, maybe that takes us on to our Isaiah. Yes. And you could always, I mean, if we do politics of the pulpit, I mean, I've said several times, you could just read Isaiah. Um, it doesn't need much interpretation, does it? No, <laughs> so I mean, Isaiah 58, we're in one to nine. Yeah, Isaiah 58, one to 12. Um, oh, yes, I had yeah. this uh, reading, uh, part of this reading at my welcome service at uh, Christchurch in Nailsworth, because for me, it is key, you know, to who we are. Um and that talks about, you know, yet day after day they seek me and a de delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and, uh, you know, seeking God, asking mm -hmm. God righteous judgments and yet recognizing that really they as a nation are serving their own interests Um and then, you know, a reminder to us of what God's righteousness is about. And it is about loosing the bonds of injustice, undoing the thongs of the yoke to let the oppressed go free, sharing your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house. You know, there is so much in there about what we are called to be and how we can be change makers in our communities. Mm. Yeah, and very much there, linking back to Micah's reading last week about what is true worship. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the thing that really, really gets on my wick is when politicians, when when somebody speaks out, when the Archbishop of Canterbury or whomever speaks out uh, on a subject, and they say, well, should we get back in your pulpit? And you want to say, look, look at Isaiah. That's what, you know, it's our job too. Yes, and I, I think sometimes we have an easier job as nonconformists um, that, you know, we can be that prophetic voice. I think that is the voice uh, of some of our ancestry. Mm. You know, um, I, I was struck this week, uh, someone in my church uh, was mentioning that she'd been reading about the, uh, it was a novel, but set in Jamaica about the, uh, the, the kind of emancipation of slaves and that Baptist ministers were involved in that. And she had realized that one of those uh, Baptist missionaries actually came from our antecedent church, Shortwood Baptist, uh, which uh, began on the, the hill in Shortwood. Our church was actually physically moved to Nailsworth in the 1880s, but it was a huge uh, kind of place and sending missionaries out. And so uh, Thomas Birchall, one of those uh, who went as a missionary, he was uh, Sam Sharp, who was a, a great kind of part of that slave uh, uprising uh, in Jamaica. You know, Thomas Birchall was the, the missionary founder of the church that Sam Sharp was part of. So for me, I was encouraged uh, to be reminded of our heritage, you know, and I know there's a lot that went wrong in mission, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, colonialism has a lot to answer for. But this sense that our church had people in who were willing to make those sacrifices uh, to go, you know, to other parts of the world, not just to share the gospel in a kind of, 
you know, salvation of souls way, but saw in that a deep sense of the injustice of what was going on and a need to do something and to stand with those uh, who were in slavery to fight for their freedom. Um, and the church sent money um, to support that work and to rebuild um, churches and places, Baptist churches that were burnt down because they were seen as part of that seditious kind of yes. element, uh, you know, supporting uh, the slaves in their bids for freedom. So, you know, that that to me, you know, I'm kind of pleased to, to learn more of that, that part of our heritage of that to me is about, you know, letting the oppressed go free, being part of that that Isaiah is speaking of. Um, just to mention that if you're if people are interested in this, I would commend to them um, um, the Radio Four podcast in our time, uh, and there's a recent episode called the Morant Bay Rebellion uh, in. I think it was Jamaica, which I had never heard about, 19th century rebellion, brutally put down by the British. Um, this was post-slave trade. And what was happening was that previous slave owners wanted to continue their power over the black population. And um, there was a an element within that I didn't know about. What it was that there was a strong Baptist element amongst the black population. The governor and the authorities were high church Anglican, and that played a part in that dynamic. So very interesting. So I would commend that to people, the Morant Bay Rebellion. On, and and I think that the Baptists then were blamed, for, you know, and told they yeah. were being too political, and that was yeah. not part of their their remit, though they clearly saw that was part of the message of Jesus that they were bringing. And, and sometimes you're right, perhaps we need to rediscover that radical element. In the minute, of course, lots of discussion about trade unions and the right to strike, um, and for Methodists, you know, we look back to the, or, or we have forgotten sometimes to look back to the Toll Pub of Martyrs. Um, a couple, I think at least a couple of whom were Methodist local preachers, you know, establishing yeah. that right to strike. So a call to radical nonconformity this morning. <laughs> Just <laughs> yes. very briefly, is there anything you wish to say about Psalm 112 before we perhaps sort of take some overarching themes? Uh, I think what I liked about Psalm 112, once again, this is talking about righteousness uh, and, uh, you know, begins with happier those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commands. And then to me, righteousness seems to be described as those who are gracious, merciful, generous. It talks about who conducts their affairs with justice. So these, to me, once again, um, it talks about, yeah, distributing freely they've given to the poor you know righteousness once again in the psalms i don't think i've noticed it as, as sort of obviously um the sense of righteousness being about our our actions towards others and a real sense of um yeah those active words towards god and towards others of generosity uh, and justice mm. very so if we were sort of Again, summing up, and I, I am relying on you, Esther, to write my sermon for Sunday. So if you were sort of summing up those, uh, drawing from those elements, and, and what what do you think you might want, want to say about righteousness within a political context? 
Um, I think I might be drawing on what we are still seeing in our government, you know, with uh, Nadim Zahawi, you know, his uh, sacking uh, this week, but really that I know there were times in the, the lead up to that he had uh, threatened journalists with legal action, you know, for trying to investigate his tax affairs. And a kind of, to me, that sort of personifies that sense of self-righteousness, you know, I'm okay, as long as kind of I can carry this front and this seems to be more and more we're seeing in politics. As long as I can convince other people that, you know, I'm behaving rightly, then, you know, it doesn't matter too much. We'll, you know, or even, you know, oh, I behave wrongly, but I've said sorry and I'll I'll move on, but seemingly continue to behave in the same way. You know, there's that kind of self-righteousness. Um, and, and then there's this righteousness that is founded in Jesus, not in saying that I am in the right, uh, but saying that, if I can look to Jesus and his righteousness, what he did for me on the cross, the example he gives of that self-sacrificial mm. love, then that gives me a sense of what it means to, um, to be righteous, a righteousness that is founded in the right relationship Jesus uh, creates for us in the new covenant founded in his blood, his death on the cross, and that we can then go on to follow his teachings, to draw strength from him and in the strength of the spirit to live out that, that faith that needs to come from an inner transformation. So the, the righteousness that comes from allowing God to change our hearts from mm. within and that being seen then in our individual actions the ways we operate as a church, we run a renew well-being space, you know, at our church where it's okay not to be okay. You can come and, and be yourself. You know, that's about spending time with people and being alongside people in the pain of mental health, uh, in the challenges there are, you know, with benefits. Uh, there, You know, we're part of the inclusive church network to say this is a place where we believe you should have the freedom to worship God as you are, you know, that you are welcome here. So for us, uh, it's about those things, but it may also be about challenging the systematic injustice we see in our society by being involved in politics, by writing to our MPs, possibly by being out there, you know, with those who are striking and certainly trying to be supportive and understanding of, of why they're doing that. Um, so justice for others, you know, so looking for that heart of, yeah, what what are we willing to bear the cost of so that others might be free, um, which does not feel like we often see that in politics at the moment. Too often it seems to be self-focused or self-interest that is driving decisions that are made. Yeah. I think there's so much there to explore about what righteousness based on the cross looks like. And as you say, drawing out really very helpfully there that, that righteousness in the scriptures is very much based. Um, somebody I knew once, a, a, a colleague of mine, he said Christian morality is it's, it's like the old, uh, it's like the pop song, dooby dooby doo. You, you, can't, you can't be 
Christian. You can't be righteous. You've got to do righteousness as well, that they are intrinsically linked and, and in the scriptures. Um, and I think, as you say, we, we, we see that challenge in our political life as well. And the temptations that politicians face to to evade and to avoid and, and and often because they are not getting the support from their constituents to do the right thing and i think one one thing i would say having worked in political life a little bit as an outsider really was to say that we should offer politicians more support when they do the right thing um not always just criticize when they do the wrong thing Yes, I mean, I wouldn't want their job, I have to say. No. I think it's a hugely challenging time, you know, in our mm. not just in our nation, but globally, you know, with all that we're seeing. Uh, mm. We need to be praying for our, our politicians uh, and helping them, yeah, to, yeah, maybe sharing with them somehow, you know, this counter-cultural counter way of being, the message of Christ that we believe in. Uh, we don't want to be... Uh, too much uh, like the world uh, we need to be in it uh, being that salt of the earth um, and trying to change it from and I think that, that is the real challenge isn't it is to be the salt that makes the world a better place and I, I think one of the issues I have really struggled with in church life um, talked about the issues that make us want to move on <laughs> in churches is the issue of race because I have found that I've had I've served congregations where people have not demonstrated that years of studying the scriptures and following Jesus have made any difference to their lives whatsoever and they are there is no difference in their attitudes about very sensitive issues like race and migration and say the boats uh, on the channel from those outside the church community and I found that very hard I found that very hard indeed because I, I feel like saying well what's the point what's the point in me preaching what's the point in us reading this scriptures if it's not going to make a blind bit of difference you you there is you are not salt you are just water like everybody else yeah yeah and it, it needs to change us um you know it needs to change us from within and we need to recognize and i think this comes across in some of these passages the cost of that you know the cost there was to jesus of speaking out and uh, you know speaking a message that wasn't valued by those who were politically in power or religiously in power you know, uh, I feel that uh, truth to need to be an ally to those uh, who I know who are part of the LGBT community uh, who are still feeling so often the oppression, uh, particularly now within the church, less so within society, but still, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the victim of prejudice, particularly those, I think, in the trans community. But, you know, uh, I I feel the pain and sadness of those I know who are told you cannot be who you are, you know, um, and I want people to know the freedom that I believe Jesus gives. But but that sometimes means for those of us who have power, you know, it may be costly. It may be costly financially. It may cost us in terms of having to share some mm -hmm. of our power 
or change some of our thinking. Uh, uh, but I think the challenge always of the gospel is that there is always more for us to learn, that the spirit is active and at work. And we need to be listening to that, to the spirit so that we can discern. Uh, I think going back to that Corinthians passage, the extended lectionary reading finishes with, but we have the mind of Christ. I mean, that's a key congregational kind of uh, mm. principle. You know, how do we uh, make sure that we are seeking the mind of Christ uh, in all of this? Excellent. You've given me a very, and that's how we can end our, um, I will end today with a quote from my favourite hymn. I think that's a perfect way to end today, Esther. Thank you so much. I think um, you've certainly given me a lot to think about for this coming Sunday. And I know that I hope that others will feel that too. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with your friends. We also have online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics on Twitter at pulpit underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit. We also have a Facebook group which you can access through the Joint Public Issue Team's Facebook page and the website jpit.uk. That's jpit.uk. And so the question perhaps um, I, we could leave you with this week is how can we be salt to the world in the name of Christ without losing our saltiness? And if I can find it, I'll just leave you with uh, the first verse of one of my favourite hymns, a hymn that I often uh, go back to uh, by Kate Barclay Wilkinson. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do or say. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>